0: Hello, and thank you for listening to today's episode of Cast, the official podcast of the Journal of Athletic Training. I'm your host, Luke Donovan. On today's podcast, I'll be summarizing a recent article published online in the Journal of Athletic Training with the goal of providing you with novel information that may impact your clinical practice. After the summary, we'll be joined by Dr. Kevin Miller to discuss his latest works regarding cooling rates of hyperthermic individuals wearing football uniforms. All papers we will be discussing today can be found on the JAT website, natajournals.org. And please remember that all content from JAT is open access to all readers, thanks to the funding of the National Athletic Trainers Association. Let's survey the scene. The article that I will summarize and the article Dr. Miller will discuss do not overlap in terms of subject or content, but rather were chosen because of the time of year. As American football seasons across all levels wane, and as spring sports get underway, it is a great time for athletic trainers to reevaluate all emergency procedures and to revise or implement injury prevention programs for upcoming seasons such as baseball. For these reasons, I'm excited to have Dr. Miller join us today so he can provide an update on cooling procedures for patients wearing football equipment. During our chat, we will also find out if the results of his latest study can be applied to spring sports. Prior to being joined by Dr. Miller, let's find out whether shoulder range of motion is truly a predictor of arm injuries among baseball players. This article is titled, Shoulder Range of Motion and Baseball Arm Injuries, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. This article is by Dr. Garrett Bullock and colleagues from Mountain River Physical Therapy, Duke University, and ATI Physical Therapy. Upper extremity injuries among baseball players commonly occurs across all levels, with incidence rates ranging from about three and a half to almost six injuries per one thousand athlete exposures, the high injury rates and continual increase in the incidence is attributed to increases in playing volume and changes in shoulder range of motion, specific to shoulder range of motion, specific to shoulder range of motion. previous literature has suggested that in response to the large stresses endured during pitching. Both soft tissue and bony adaptations occur within and around the glenohumeral joints that ultimately change shoulder range of motion. Some studies have found that soft tissue adaptation can be modified through the sleeper stretch and the use of instrumented soft tissue mobilization. The effects of interventions geared to improve soft tissue changes, and perhaps most importantly, the relationship between shoulder range of motion and upper extremity injury. Therefore, by way of a systematic review and meta-analysis, the authors aim to assess the quality of evidence of current literature and to determine the relationship between shoulder range of motion and the risk of upper extremity injuries in baseball players. Now let's discuss the methods used within this study. The study was completed by adhering to the preferred reporting items for systematic reviews and meta-analysis, also known as the PRISMA guidelines. Using PubMed, CINAHL, base and Sport Discus, an electronic search was completed by a medical research librarian using a set list of vocabulary related to range of motion and shoulder anatomy. Following the search, two independent reviewers determined relevance and adherence to the inclusion and exclusion criteria. Studies were included if the participants were baseball players aged 13 years or older at any competition level who had an assessment of shoulder range of motion, being internal rotation, total range of motion, external rotation, or horizontal adduction in either the supine or prone position. Other inclusion criteria was that healthy cohorts were tracked prospectively or retrospectively for injury and included injury incidents or injury rate. Studies were not included if they were cross-sectional studies that compared healthy participants and those who were in pain or injured, case studies, papers written in a language other than English, shoulder range of motion measurements not taken in prone or supine position, participation in a sport other than baseball, or any study that lacked injury data. Finally, all studies had to be published within a peer-reviewed journal. The following measures and comparisons were made within the meta-analysis. Injured and uninjured group differences for absolute shoulder range of motion and throwing versus non-throwing shoulder range of motion deficits for internal rotation, external rotation, and total range of motion, which was defined by adding both internal rotation and external rotation together. Injured and uninjured group differences for horizontal adduction were assessed solely for absolute range of motion due to the lack of data reporting for throwing versus non-throwing shoulder range of motion deficits. The results of the study are as follows. The initial search generated 707 studies. Following review of the titles and abstracts, the full text of 18 studies were evaluated to determine eligibility. Of those 18 studies, six were included as part of the quality assessment and analysis. Across the six studies, 1,056 participants were included. Specific to study quality, all studies provided level 2B evidence since they are all a prospective study design. Based on the modified Downs and Black scale, where a score of 15 represents the highest quality, The study quality ranged from 11 to 14, so overall, we're all considered to use quality methods. However, common areas that reduce the quality of the studies and should not be overlooked when interpreting each individual study were that examiners from three studies were not blinded to participants throwing arm during assessment. Four studies did not have a sufficient power, which increases the risk of a statistical error. And finally, only one study included confounding variables such as pitch count within their analysis. After pulling the data across all six studies, the authors found that the absolute shoulder internal rotation range of motion, the internal rotation shoulder range of motion bilateral deficit, and the absolute shoulder total range of motion were predictors of injuries and displayed homogeneity across the data. The absolute shoulder horizontal adduction range of motion were predictors of injury. However, the data did display some moderate inconsistency meaning interpretation of this specific result should be used with caution until future investigations are completed. From a clinical standpoint and interpretation, the authors found that the baseball players with any of the following scenarios are at a greater risk of being injured. First, absolute shoulder internal rotation less than 44 degrees. Second, total range of motion being less than 160 degrees. Third, side-to-side deficits in internal rotation in excess of five degrees, And finally, side-to-side deficits in total range of motion in excess of eight degrees. Athletic trainers should consider these findings when designing upper extremity injury prevention programs. It would also most likely be beneficial to include these measures as part of a baseline injury and return to sports screening in an effort to decrease the upper extremity injury risk. Now I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Kevin Miller from Central Michigan University, who recently authored a paper titled, Cooling Rates of Hyperthermic Humans Wearing American Football Uniforms When Cold Water Immersion Is Delayed, which can be found at natajournals.org. Hi, Dr. Miller, and welcome to JATCAST.
1: Hi, Luke, Chris. Great to be
0: with you. Thanks for the opportunity to do this. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. My name is Kevin Miller, and I'm a full professor in the athletic training program here at Central Michigan University. My area of research expertise is in exertional heat illnesses, and specifically, I really look at uh, two different heat illnesses, primarily exercise-associated muscle cramping and exertional heat stroke. And a little bit more about my background, I was very humbled to co-author the NATA position statement on exertional heat illnesses that was published back in 2015, as well as the more recent NATA roundtable on malignant hyperthermia and physically active populations. I'm also very humbled to join the editorial board for the Journal of Athletic Training for the last couple of years and am very lucky to contribute back to the profession in that way.
0: Thank you. Can you provide a brief background and summary of your latest work on cooling rates of hyperthermic humans wearing American football uniforms?
1: Sure, happy to share more about our research. And before we get into some of the detail, I just want to say and acknowledge uh, my co-authors, Grace Cott and Tim Demango. These were two fantastic undergraduate athletic training students that we had here at Central Michigan University. And it was one of their undergraduate research projects that we were fortunate enough to do here. And also want to acknowledge uh, Brian Weiss, Mike McPike, Tyler Truxton, as well as the College of Health Professions and Office of Research and Grad Studies for funding the study. And so let's talk about the study for a little bit and why it was important. First off, uh, we know that American football is probably the riskiest sport when it comes to development of exertional heat illnesses. We know from some data in secondary schools, for example, that American footballers have about an 11 times higher risk of getting a heat illness than any other sport combined. And there's a lot of reasons for that from football usually starting in the hottest part of the year to wearing Uh, oftentimes very cumbersome equipment that adds weight and thus increases metabolic expenditure during exercise, during the activity. And so American football players are uh, very much at risk of developing exertional heat illnesses with the most severe being exertional heat stroke. And that would be one of the leading causes of sudden death in athletes. And in fact, the recent death of Jordan McNair at the University of Maryland kind of highlights the need for Uh, podcasts like this one to keep the discussion going, to keep uh, the memory of these athletes that unfortunately pass away alive, as well as to help educate people about what we could do differently going forward so these types of tragic events never happen again. And so we continue to lose American football players to exertional heat strokes. So this type of research is vital. And so to refresh everybody's memory exertional heat stroke occurs when body core temperature exceeds 105 degrees Fahrenheit and the athlete shows central nervous system dysfunction. And as we've been taught, the best way to reduce body core temperature is with whole body cold water immersion. And so what we typically look for in these types of studies is for a very high cooling rate. Uh, Usually we set that threshold right around point one five degrees C per minute and we know that it's very important to get people immersed in cold water as quickly as we possibly can because the number one thing that determines whether or not your athlete is going to live or die if they have exertional heat stroke is how long their internal body core temperature stays above 105 degrees Fahrenheit. So ideally we would like to get their internal body temperature below 102 within about 30 minutes of symptom development. And so this is really where our study kind of was born. And so we dug into the literature and we found a study by Floris uh, Glenn Kenny and Doug Casa that looked at what happens when you have varying treatment delays and then you immerse somebody in cold water. And what they found was, even with very long treatment delays, up to 40 minutes, the cooling rate for cold water immersion was still excellent. But they had a little, limitations. So first off, their subjects just wore some minimal clothing. They ran in a rain poncho to the point of near heat stroke. And we wanted to expand that research by looking at American football gear because it's heavier, it covers more body service area, and it really puts a stress on the body that's very different than if you have, say, a rain poncho on and you're wearing regular workout gear. So really, our study was meant to answer three questions. We wanted to know When you wear an American football uniform and you delay cold water immersion by five minutes or 30 minutes, do you get a difference in how fast people cool? And then secondly, when you get people in cold water immersion and you cool them after either a short or a prolonged delay, do we still get excellent cooling even when you wear a full American football uniform during the cold water immersion? And then the third question we wanted to answer was, how do delays affect subjective experiences by people that are borderline heat stroke? Does that impact how hot they think they are or the number and intensity of heat illness type symptoms that they experience?
0: What made you pick those specific time intervals?
1: Sure, that's a great question. So prior research has shown that when you have qualified medical people like athletic trainers, Simulating a heat stroke event, it takes about five minutes to remove equipment, insert a rectal thermistor, and then evaluate somebody to diagnose them with exertional heat stroke. Whereas 30 minutes we chose because that is kind of the longest time we would like to see before uh, we start to really worry about people having cell breakdown and possible long term effects from having a high body core temperature.
0: Can you describe the data collection process?
1: Sure, so the methodology for this study was relatively simple. So we had 10 healthy, hydrated, physically active men come in on two different days, and we utilized what's called a crossover design for the study where we used the same people, they came in on different days, and then we randomized whether they first got a five minute delay or a 30 minute delay when they did the study. So we had half of the men do the five-minute day first, and then half the other subjects did the 30-minute day first in a counterbalance crossover dot design. And so after uh, we checked their hydration status and took a couple of kind of baseline measurements, we had all of our subjects put on a full American football uniform, and then we put them in a heat chamber that was set to about 101 degrees with about 45% humidity. And then we had them exercise on a treadmill until their rectal temperature was borderline heat stroke. Specifically, 103.5 was the maximum value that our Human's Protections Board felt comfortable taking uh, these subjects to. So we weren't able to get them to full heat stroke uh, temperatures, which would be about 105 degrees Fahrenheit, but we got them relatively close. And then once the subjects got to that 103.5 rectal temp, We had them sit in a chair in the heat with all of their equipment on for either five minutes or 30 minutes. And then after that delay in treatment, we had them remove their shoes, but then everything else stayed on for the football uniform, helmet included. And then they immersed themselves up to the neck in 50 degree Fahrenheit water. And we measured their rectal temperature before exercise, during exercise, during the cold water immersion, and then even after the cold water immersion period. And we also asked them how hot they felt, what we would call thermal sensation. And we also asked them to rate the intensity and number of symptoms that were related to heat illness. And then after we cooled them to a rectal temperature of 37.75 or 100 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, we took them out of the cold water bath. We made them sit in the heat again to kind of warm up for a uh, safety protocol. And then we excused the subjects after that. Is there any
0: limitations of the study or the study design that you would want the listeners to know about?
1: I think there are two major limitations. First, uh, because of safety reasons, we could not give somebody real exertional heat stroke. And so we use a model that's very consistent in the literature where We have people exercise to borderline exertional heat stroke, but we didn't actually give people exertional heat stroke. And then secondly, our subjects are oftentimes volunteers, and so uh, we're not allowed a lot of times to use the actual American football athletes that attend Central Michigan University. And so uh, the body characteristics of our subject pool were not consistent with the body characteristics that we would typically see of an American football player who, say, dies from exertional heat stroke.
0: What do you think was the most important finding of this paper?
1: Sure, well, a couple of the, the big results. First, we were able to get people to borderline heat stroke temperatures within about 45 minutes. After the five minute delay occurred, what we noticed was rectal temperature actually rose little bit in fact we got people to a rectal temperature very close to 40 degrees Celsius which uh, would be again very close to exertional heat stroke but not quite meeting that uh, definition of exertional heat stroke and that's really normal and that's a learning point for athletic trainers because when you stop exercise that blood flow that was once in the exercising muscle comes back to the gut upon exercise cessation so it's normal to see an actual increase in rectal temperature if exercise stops. And so during that first five minute period, we actually noticed rectal temperature went up before people got into the cold water bath. So the clinical application point of that is, if you put somebody into a cold water immersion uh, tub, don't be shocked if rectal temperature doesn't fall immediately, because that blood flow is coming back into the gut. And so it takes a little bit of time And you might even see rectal temperature plateau before it finally starts to decrease. So don't panic. It's just normal process of what's going to happen. What was other interesting points was after the 30-minute delay, rectal temperature actually dropped to about 39.5. And that was also expected because passive cooling rates, even with American football gear on, will occur. But what was interesting is... Our cooling rates, again, even with full American football gear on, were excellent. In both treatment delay periods, our cooling rates were approximately 0.2 degrees Celsius per minute. And again, the threshold that we would really like to see to call something excellent is above 0.15 degrees C per minute. So even with a five minute or a 30 minute treatment delay and full American football gear on, Cold water immersion was fantastic for cooling somebody that was very very hot.
0: do you think it's safe to translate some of the results from this study to other sports that are equipment intensive
1: right so great question it's It's kind of dangerous to speculate about how other equipment intensive sports would behave because the equipment's different it covers. Uh, different amounts of body surface area. A lot of times these sports are often played indoors versus outdoors. They're played by a completely different group of people with different body characteristics. So it's very, I would be very cautious about trying to take this data and apply it to other sports.
0: This does not need to be related to this paper, but what's the best paper that you've read lately?
1: Well, a couple of things. There are some amazing research coming out of the journal of athletic training right now it's fantastic to uh, see the online first articles and just recently i think it might have been uh, yesterday the new position statement on immediate management of joint dislocations was released and this is just a fantastic evidence-based document uh, produced by the nata to help make sure athletic trainers are on the same page with their physicians that the eap that they're following is appropriate that we have well thought out joint specific guidelines for how to manage joint dislocations. And so these types of papers and position statements are vital for helping athletic trainers create good EAPs so that We can best take care of our athletes and then specific to my area of interest uh, there was a recent paper submitted to the journal of athletic training recently published by andy grunstein and yuri hasakawa and doug casa looking at regional heat safety guidelines and exertional heat stroke death in american football players and this is something that i think is really gonna uh, push our profession forward and ultimately change how athletic trainers use activity modification for uh, heat illness prevention. Right now, we kind of use these national guidelines, like the Georgia High School Activity Association guidelines. And while those are fantastic, and they are known to lower the number of heat illnesses, a lot of times those guidelines aren't specific enough for cold states like uh, my state in Michigan. And so we know that athletes will acclimatize to the conditions in which they live and practice. But when they encounter maybe abnormally high days of heat stress, if you're using a national guideline that maybe used Georgia as its kind of standard for what is a hot temperature, then a lot of times the northern states and the colder states – they might not cancel practice when maybe they should have because their temperatures usually don't get that hot. And so what I think we're going to see in the near future is a recommendation to go from instead of a national standard to a region-specific activity modification standard. And so I would say to athletic trainers, you know, start looking at those types of things. Start looking at your own state and your own weather patterns to see whether or not you can implement those region-specific guidelines to better take care of your athletes and modify practices according to your own region rather than maybe a national standard that used a very hot state.
0: Dr. Miller, thank you for taking the time to answer my questions. Uh, this has been very informative. Um, we appreciate all everything that you've done so far and all the hard work that you continue to put out in JAT.
1: All right, thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it.
0: Well, that is it for today's JAT Cast. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast, which is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can find out more information about upcoming podcasts and other JAT events on our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram accounts at JAT underscore N A T A. Thank you for listening and keep a lookout for next month's JAT Cast.